All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today, and I'm going to read part of this kind of in the middle. So I want all you little ones to listen. The apostle Peter, you know what happened to him? He was arrested. You know why he was arrested? Because he loved Jesus, that's why. If you have to get arrested, that's a good reason to get arrested, okay? There's not really very many other good reasons to get arrested. But if you love Jesus and you get arrested, that's a good thing, okay? So listen what the Bible says. So there was a king, a wicked king. His name was Herod. And you've heard of Herod before because there was a king named Herod who tried to kill Jesus. But this was the grandson of that Herod. And Herod had the apostle Peter arrested. And verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands and then the angel led him out of the prison. So, I want you guys to think about this. Peter was arrested. And do you know how many guards they put with Peter? Sixteen. The Bible says he was delivered to four squads of soldiers. Each of those squads had four soldiers. And they had four guards guarding him at a time. He was inside the prison with heavy chains on him between two guards and then outside a locked door, there were two other guards watching to make sure no one came in and no one went out. It looked like Peter was in a pretty impossible situation. But you know what happened? God sent an angel. And Peter was asleep in the middle of the night, and the angel hit Peter in the side and said, Wake up! Get up! And when Peter got up, the chains fell off. And Peter and the angel went out of the prison and Peter escaped. That's good news. Peter was in an impossible situation. Do you think it would be impossible for you to be chained inside of a prison with two guards by you and two guards outside of a door with locked doors all the way through the prison with all the other guards there? Do you think you could get out of that prison by yourself? You think you could break heavy chains by yourself? Who here thinks you can break heavy chains by yourself? You couldn't. So it would be impossible for you to do that, but guess who it's not impossible for? Who is it not impossible for? Jesus, that's right. It's not impossible for the Lord. Do you know what the Bible says? It says, with God, all things are possible. 
So if you ever find yourself in an impossible situation, you know who it's possible for? God. So should we, a peop should we be people who never, ever lose hope? Or should we say, oh, there's no hope for me. This is impossible. Or should we say, this looks impossible, and it might be impossible for me, but with God, how many things are possible? How many? All things are possible with God. Gideon, with God, how many things are impossible? Yes. Zero. Nothing. And with God, all things, though, are possible. So we should never, ever lose hope, even when our situation looks impossible. Because with God, say it with me, with God, all things are impossible. So with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. So don't ever, ever, ever forget that, okay? Now look at your parents and look at the big people around you and say to them, don't ever, ever, ever forget that. With God, all things are possible. Okay? That's what I want you to know. That's what I want you to hear. That's what I want you to learn. That's what I want you to live. Okay? You ready? Let's go to the book of Acts and let's read the rest of this chapter. Now I'm going to give you the rest of the story, okay? Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you and we're going to go through and talk about four things that we're going to see in this chapter. You ready? Here we go. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. 
So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these, these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they also took with them John whose surname was Mark. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and make this word come alive to us, illuminate it in us, that it would change us and transform us, that it would break down the hardness of our hearts, that it would teach us, that it would indeed cause us to become conformed to the image of the Son of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this, Father, in his name, the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so here in Acts chapter 12, there's a lot here that we obviously cannot go through um, in one setting. I'm going to do really good to get through what I have for you today. There's four things in this chapter, in these verses, that I want us to, to focus on today. It's persecution, deliverance, judgment, and multiplication. Persecution, we see Herod persecutes the church to gain favor with the Jews. Deliverance, Peter is arrested but miraculously delivered by an angel of the Lord. Judgment, Herod is judged by God. He's struck by an angel of the Lord and he dies. Luke tells us here in Acts that he was eaten by worms. Josephus gives a very graphic uh, portrayal of his death as well. 
And the fourth thing is multiplication. And the Word of God grew and multiplied. So I want to talk about these four things in general and how they relate to us today because these things are relevant. They're examples for us in the day that we're living in today. So let's talk about persecution. Something we all love to talk about, isn't it? You love to come to church and hear about persecution, I know. Persecution is nothing new for the people of God. Throughout the long history of God's people in the Old Testament church and into the New Testament church up to this day, we see the people of God persecuted by the enemies of God. The persecution of God's people ultimately stems from the spiritual conflict that continues and will continue until the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. So I want you to understand this. We are in a war, a battle, a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle, a conflict that didn't begin with us. It began long before us, and it will not end with us. It will continue even until Jesus returns. This is the spiritual conflict between God and the devil, good and evil, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The devil hates mankind because man is created in the image of God. He hates the people of God in particular because they hold a place with God that the devil will never hold. The devil's desire to be as God is the pride and it is the downfall of the enemy. It was his downfall. His attempt to usurp God and to be as God and exalt himself above God caused his very own fall. It is also the pride and the downfall of man. It is exactly what man did in the garden. This conflict began between man and the devil in the garden when the serpent comes to the woman and deceives her. Adam allowed that deception and, when, and then ate the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives Adam and Eve an entire garden. He gives them permission to access anything in that garden except for one thing, one tree and the fruit of that tree. If you even touch it, he said, you will die. And they did more than touch it, they ate it. This is the conflict. This is the root of our conflict. Listen to Genesis 3, 13 through 15. After Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm giving you guys a little break here. I didn't read the verses preceding where Adam throws Eve under the bus and said, it's that woman you gave me. But who was ultimately responsible there? Adam was. Adam had complete power to stop the deception, to not allow the, garden, the, the serpent into the garden, and he utterly failed in his responsibility. And what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam did. The second Adam saved his wife. The second Adam died for his wife. What the first Adam should have done, Jesus, the second Adam, did. That's good news. 
And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He that's the seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That seed of the woman is Jesus. Jesus is the one who crushed the head of the serpent. And though the serpent saw the Son of God crucified, and though the heel of the Son of God was bruised in crushing the head of the serpent, he is the one who has delivered us from the bondage of sin and death brought by our first father, Adam, when he disobeyed God and sought to be as God in the garden. The root of our conflict is important for us to realize and to remember so that we understand the type of battle that we are fighting. There is no doubt we have enemies in the flesh, but our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says the same thing in a different way in his second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The rulers of darkness, the spiritual host of wickedness, those dark forces of evil who work through the sons of disobedience are the forces we are really wrestling with. As believers, there is no greater battlefield than our mind. It is the mind that 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 6 is dealing with. It is the mind that the serpent got into. He got into Eve's mind and deceived her. He's not going to come to you and destroy you with a sword. He's not going to kill your physical body. Oh, he may have someone else do that. But you understand what I mean? The devil comes, the Bible says, as an angel of light. He's a master deceiver. He gets in our mind and he deceives us. And we become our own worst enemies. This is why the mind is our greatest battlefield. This is why we are commanded to take our thoughts into captivity and make them obey Christ. The battles we fight are not won by waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. And only in the Lord and in the power of his might can we stand against the schemes of the devil and pull down the strongholds opposing us. How do we punish our enemies? 
Through our obedience is the answer to that question. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is why the apostle teaches us to take up the whole armor of God as a picture of our complete obedience to God. How is our obedience fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled in our flesh. In other words, we live out, we walk out our obedience. Don't confuse the reality of spiritual warfare with something that takes place in an invisible realm. The spiritual warfare we are engaged in right now is being waged, yes, in the heavenly realm, but also in this earthly realm. We wage our spiritual warfare in our flesh, just not according to the flesh. Do you understand the difference? There is a real difference. We are in a real battle. It involves our bodies. It involves the world we live in. But we do not fight that battle according to the flesh, though we are fighting it in the flesh. We're walking out our faith in the flesh. But it's not through the flesh. It's not in the power of the flesh that we achieve anything, that we attain anything in God or in Christ. We're not saved by getting our flesh under control. We're saved by Jesus. And Jesus gives us the power to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But our battle is real and tangible. And it could even cost us our life as we saw here in Acts chapter 12. Obedience cannot remain invisible. It must become visible if it is going to be fulfilled and so punish disobedience. The command to take up the whole armor of God is a command to fully obey God as we wage our spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.13, Paul writes, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. This is not a magic incantation or ritual for you to do each day. I've had people tell me before, I get up every morning and the first thing I do is put my armor on. If that's helpful for you, that's fine, but I want you to understand, if you forget to go through that ritual and midday you realize that and then you feel like you're exposed, that's not the point of this scripture. This is a command to walk in the obedience of Christ each and every day. It is a command to stand and to not fall, to put on the new man and to walk in the spirit so that we are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. This is how we punish all disobedience through our obedience. Herod persecuted the church to gain favor with the Jews. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. That means they took his head off. That's what they did in the Roman Empire. If you were a Roman citizen and executed, they took your head off. If you were a Jew and the Romans took your head off, they did that because to a Jew to have your head removed was, was not good. That was not a good way for you to die if you were a Jew. The other way, even worse than having your head taken off, was to be crucified, to be hung on a tree. Those who hung on a tree are cursed, and that's why Jesus was hung on a tree to become a curse for us. When it says that James was killed with the sword, what they did was take his head off. And Herod has his head taken off to satisfy his political enemies in hopes that those enemies would become his allies. 
we see the very same tactics used today by the same enemy today. The battle we're fighting is not new. It's very old. The enemy we're fighting is not new. He's very old. We just happen to be in our time of visitation. Different environment, same battle, same enemy. And our victory comes the same way, through Christ. Man's pride is used cruelly by the enemy. The goal being the destruction of God's people, the destruction of God's ways, the destruction of God's plan. God has already won the war. I want you to understand this. The enemy is fighting a losing battle, but a battle he still fights nonetheless. If you're with us on, on a Wednesday night as we go through the book of Revelation, you see this. When the judgment comes and the enemy's cast out, the voice from heaven said, Woe to those who dwell on the earth because the enemy's been cast down and he is really mad. And he's going to really take it out on you inhabitants of the earth. He's fighting a losing battle, but he's fighting nonetheless. And even more so in his wrath, knowing that he has been cast down. And this is why the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. We are still carrying out that work as the body of Christ today, destroying the works of the devil as we see God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our battle. This is our warfare to push back the darkness, to take the kingdom of God and expand it throughout the entire earth. This is the commission given to the church. Make disciples of all the nations. The nations still need to be discipled. Look at America. Look at our nation and tell me this nation does not need to be discipled. Yes, it does. And guess who is here to do that discipling? We are. This is our time of visitation on this earth. And we have a lot of work to do. Persecution should be expected for Jesus promised that it would come. Persecution does not mean God is not with us. Persecution can mean and hopefully does mean when it comes that the enemy has taken notice of us and seeks to stop us before we do more damage to the works of darkness. Be of good cheer when the enemy takes notice. It means that we have disrupted the status quo in the spirit realm where our true battle is taking place. So persecution is never something that should surprise the church. We don't want it, we don't seek it, but when it comes, we have to deal with it, just like the church in the book of Acts had to deal with it. Deliverance. Peter was arrested by Herod with the intent to execute him as he did James. When he saw how much it pleased the Jewish people to have James executed, he said, well, let's take Peter. Because Peter was the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. And Peter is arrested by Herod. He's in prison. But instead of Herod being able to execute Peter as he did James, Peter is miraculously delivered out of the prison by an angel of the Lord. Herod had Peter put under maximum security. What I explained to the kids is, was the common practice under the, under the 
uh, Roman Empire, if there was a political prisoner or any type of prisoner that needed maximum security, that's what they would do. They would have four guards guarding him all the time, and they would change those guards out every three hours to make sure those guards remained alert. Now, you might say, well, why, why was Peter such a threat? Well, if you remember, this isn't the first time that Herod's, the Herods had lost a prisoner. This wasn't the first time God had done something that, that, that was beyond man's capability. And so the point here was we're not going to lose Peter. They didn't lose James. And I would be willing to bet that they put James under the same guard as they put Peter. But we have a different outcome here. Practically speaking... There was no way humanly possible for Peter to escape his confinement. The good news is that Peter and all of us today are not dependent upon what is humanly possible, but what is possible with God. And with God, how many things are possible? All things are possible. We look at America and say, it's impossible we're ever going to get out of this mess. No, you look at America and say, with God, all things are possible. Keep praying. Keep working, keep believing, keep reading, keep planting seed, keep watering seed, keep trusting God for the increase. Peter's situation looked very grave. Herod had Peter arrested during Passover and he was going to wait until after the feast, it's a seven-day feast, before he brought Peter before the people. Peter had already seen this played out with Jesus. He saw it played out with Stephen. He saw it played out with James, the brother of John. Peter did not doubt that his fate left up to Herod and the Jews who would be pleased with his death. He, he didn't have a doubt what his fate would be if he was brought to trial. Peter's deliverance came literally the night before he was to be taken out and tried. The scripture does not tell us Peter stayed a mine. But he obviously wasn't losing any sleep because he was fast asleep and the angel had to punch him in the side to get him to wake up. How'd you like to be punched in the side by the angel of the Lord? You know, one day when you get to Peter, you should ask Peter, Peter, how'd that feel when the angel of the Lord punched you in the side and woke you up in the middle of the night? He probably said, it hurt, but it got my attention. You know, sometimes God will let us hurt in order to get our attention so that he can save us. God waited literally until the last moment to deliver Peter. This is not a new lesson for us. God's timing is very often not the timing we would choose. God's ways are very often not the ways that we would choose. Left up to Peter, James would still be alive and he Peter would not be sitting in a prison awaiting his execution. But God's ways are not our ways. Listen to the words of the prophet concerning God's thoughts and God's ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Just because we cannot make sense of what God is doing does not relieve us of our responsibility to trust Him and to walk in obedience to Him. 
It is in those times of greatest internal and external conflict that our obedience is most important. It is in those times of great conflict and questioning that the enemy tempts us to disobey and to distrust God. It is in those times when we choose to fulfill our obedience that all disobedience is punished most severely. This is why Samuel told King Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul's disobedience not only cost him the kingdom, but it cost Israel the battle. This is a lesson the church must learn. Truly, obedience is better than sacrifice, for when our obedience is fulfilled, all disobedience is punished. Peter was in an impossible situation. Impossible for man, but not impossible for God. Chained between two soldiers, asleep in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes and miraculously delivers Peter. It took Peter some time until he was sure that he was not in a dream or a vision. The Bible says it was not until Peter had passed two guard posts, seen the iron gate open, untouched, and then go out and go up a city street, and then the angel vanished, and then all of a sudden Peter says, wow, this is not a dream. This is not a vision. This is real. We can become so convinced of the impossibility of our situation that we find it hard to believe anything else. This is very often what happens to us. We get so used to seeing and hearing the impossible before us. We listen to the narrative of the enemy that comes through all sorts of means. It comes through the media. It comes from ourselves. It comes from all sorts of sources. And we begin to believe the narrative that this is impossible and there is no hope for me. We need to shake ourselves from that. We need to remind ourselves that it may be impossible for me. It may be impossible for man, but it is not impossible for God. While all of this was taking place, the believers were gathered at the house of Mary, the mother of John. And they had been there constantly offering up prayers to God on Peter's behalf. And while they were praying, Peter arrives at the house having been miraculously delivered by an angel of the Lord. God heard and answered the prayers of the saints according to his will. Peter had been delivered by God. Those praying found it difficult at first to believe that God had actually answered their prayers. I'm sure they prayed the same thing for the apostle James, the brother of John. But James was executed. Now they're praying Peter for Peter. They see Peter now arrested just as James was. And they're praying for God to answer their prayers. And guess what God does? He answered their, spra- their prayers. And then when Peter gets to the gate and he's knocking and Rhoda comes, she's so overcome with the fact that it's Peter's voice. She goes back and guess what? Everyone believed her. Now she goes back and nobody believed her. Now think about that for a moment, church. Here we are praying and God answers our prayer and we, we don't actually believe God has answered our prayer. Because we're so used to unbelief. We're so used to disbelieving God because we are so used to judging what God does based on what we're able to see with our eyes. Well, James was executed. What's the chance that Peter's going to get out of that prison with 16 guards guarding him? Constantly 
never letting him out of their sight, chained up inside of a locked prison, not just one door, but multiple doors, a fortress. It was a fortress that Peter was in. What are the chances that Peter's going to get out? Mm. If you're looking at any human, human uh, statistic, it's, it's not good. And here, God answers their prayer, and they have to be convinced that this is really Peter out there. That's not who we want to be. We want to be people that believe God answers prayer, even when he does not answer our prayer the way we wanted him to. They prayed for James, but God did not answer their prayer the way they wanted God to answer it. This is an important lesson for us today as we pray for God's deliverance on behalf of individuals and on behalf of our nation. Our deliverance can only come by the hand of God. It will come only according to God's will, God's way, God's time, and God's word. It will not come according to our own will or according to our own way all the time, maybe most of the time. God works according to his will, his plan, and his purpose. This is God's way until God's people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. God will not hear and God will not heal their land until God's people humble themselves and pray. Not until the world changes their mind. The world is never going to change their mind until God changes their heart. And the only reason you and I have changed our minds is because God changed our heart. It's like I always tell people when we go through the not I but Christ. It's like trying to discern a sunset with your ears. You don't discern a sunset with your ears. You discern a sunset with your eyes. As judgment begins in the house of God... This is what the Bible says. Just as judgment begins in the house of God, the deliverance of a people and the deliverance of a nation must begin in the house of God. Our deliverance must begin in our own house. It must begin in this house, individually and corporately. Do not despair in the face of impossible odds. We must trust in the Lord. We must trust in His ways, in His thoughts. Even when we see God allow the unthinkable, we are called to trust and obey. Think about this. Peter and the believers saw James executed. Peter had no reason to believe that God would not allow his execution as well. Peter had to trust God even as he did not understand God's ways. The same is true for us today. God's deliverance will come. It may come as it did for James, and you do realize he was delivered. Yes, he was delivered of his head, but he was also delivered from this world, filled with sin and death. We must trust that deliverance will come. It may come as it did for James with the removal of his head, or it may come as it did with Peter with an angel showing up at the last hour. However God chooses to send it, deliverance is ours in Jesus Christ, even in death. We must trust God in these seemingly impossible times. It is in the midst of all the uncertainty we feel. There, there is no uncertainty with God, though. 
I want you to understand this. You may feel uncertain. You may see the uncertainty. But with God, there is no uncertainty. He has a plan. He has a purpose in all that happens, in all that he allows. To trust him is to obey him. Trust and obey like never before. This is the time that we must trust God to bring his deliverance to us. As we trust, let us obey and so punish the disobedience around us through our obedience. Deliverance is ours in Jesus. There is nothing too difficult for him. Trust and obey and we will see the salvation of the Lord in life and in death. Judgment. Peter escaped prison by the hand of God and so escaped Herod. Herod did not escape the hand of God. Peter was spared the judgment of Herod, but Herod was not spared the judgment of God. Herod was struck by an angel of the Lord and died. That was God's judgment upon Herod. The pride of Herod was on full display when he did not rebuke a crowd of people crying out, the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. He took great pride in that. He had his royal robes on and he reveled in their adulations, likening him to God. It was a fatal mistake because in his pride, in his rejoicing and reveling in all of those adulations, calling him a God and not a man, and him refusing to deflect the glory where it properly belonged to God, he was struck by an angel of the Lord, and so God's judgment came to Herod. By the way, Herod was a very cruel individual, a very evil man. He died a very cruel death. The guards that guarded Peter were all executed because Roman law was if you are guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escapes under your responsibility, you will suffer the same sentence that prisoner was to suffer. And Peter was to be executed. So every guard that was responsible, those four squads of soldiers, they were all executed. Think about that. Herod was the king. He could order that, and he did order that. There is no doubt we're seeing this happen before our very eyes in America. The judgment of God is real. We must not believe otherwise. If the church is complicit in the sins of a people or a nation, the church will experience the judgment of God even as that people or that nation does. This is what we're seeing happen in America right now. The church can no longer pretend that all is well. She has been complicit in her apathy and her compromise. We know all is not well, but we refuse the remedy as being too bitter. The remedy is the truth. It is the living and powerful word of God that is piercing and dividing and discerning. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give an account. Men resist God's remedy and will be judged because they love darkness rather than light. 
Men reject the truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness, embracing the lie rather than being set free by the truth. Judgment begins in the house of God where truth is supposed to reside. We can have the truth, but if we do not apply the truth and walk in the truth, then it does us no good, and we are without excuse. This is exactly what Jesus told the Pharisees, who, who were the keepers and the purveyors of the truth, but they chose to believe a lie instead. Judgment awaits. When and how it will come and its duration is known only by God. God's judgment is just and right. Herod's death was cruel and painful just as the man himself was. The guards watching Peter suffered Peter's fate. They were executed as Peter would have been executed. Herod was a cruel man and he died a cruel death. Justice will be served if not by man, then by God. We look around us today and this is the cry. Social justice. Where is justice? I promise you, justice is alive and well. And if man does not serve justice, then God will serve justice. The good news for us who are in Christ is we will not receive the justice we deserve because we are all fallen short of the glory of God. The entire human race is depraved and sinful. We should not marvel that men go to hell. We should marvel that God would save even one of us because there is not even one of us that deserve his salvation. And the only man to ever walk this earth that was worthy and deserving of salvation was the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one truly innocent was the one that took the wrath of God upon himself for those who God chose to save. Justice will be served. It has been served. God uses man to serve justice. Judgments from God come upon the wicked through the authority God sets in place. God's judgment will come in his name and according to his will. And as we see with Herod and many others, God eventually judges the authority and he puts, that he puts in place when it becomes wicked. Herod was an authority a wicked authority that God judged. God judges wicked authorities. There is a final judgment that all men will stand in. Every man's work will be judged. What we do in the body and out of the body will be judged by God. The good news for God's children is that we have confidence in the judgment for as he is, so are we in this world. And that is only by the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Before the final judgment, there are judgments meted out here on this earth. I believe peoples and nations are judged in their times according to God's plan and God's purpose. I believe the church experiences those judgments and is largely responsible as she is the thermometer of the culture. If you want to know what's wrong with the culture, go back and look at the church. If you want to know why it's too hot or too cold in your house, what do you do? You go and you look at your thermometer. The church is the thermometer for the culture. The problems we're seeing in our nation today didn't come from Washington. They didn't come from Austin. They didn't come from the mayor's office. They came from the church 
because the church failed to keep the gospel, preach the truth, keep walking in obedience to God. She became more fearful of man than she did of God, and she began to water down her message and forsake the gospel, and the culture has suffered as a result. And it continues to suffer, and it will continue to suffer until the church gets her act together. And God has a way of helping the church get its act together, and we're seeing it take place right now. It's not always pleasant, though. As the church goes, so goes the culture. As the church is judged, so judged is the culture. Judgment begins in the house of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. And if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matter. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is what happened to James. He suffered according to the will of God. He committed his soul as to a faithful creator. We should not fear God's judgment, though terrible it is. We should trust and obey God in his judgments. The judgment of God upon the wicked, as with Herod, should comfort us and remind us of God's holiness and righteousness and judgment. Our nation is the product of God's righteous judgment. Read your history, not the history they teach you today in school. Read the real history from the real founding fathers, from the real writings, and understand that this very nation and the revolution that established this nation was an appeal to heaven because of the unrighteous authority that existed. And God brought judgment, righteous judgment. Those who suffer according to the will of God, as James and Peter did, are to commit their souls to him in doing good, no matter the consequences. He is a faithful creator, not because he does all things according to our will, but because he does all things according to his will. And that is to his glory and to our good. And at the end of this, we see out of all of that persecution and judgment and deliverance, however the deliverance came, God brings multiplication. When we consider all that Acts chapter 12 conveys to us, we come to a very short and succinct conclusion.
And the word of God grew and multiplied. This is the purpose of all that happened, that the word of God would grow and multiply and God would be glorified. As Romans 8, 28 teaches us, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is not a picture of God coming behind us, fixing our messes. This is a picture of God eternally before us, willing and doing according to his good pleasure. The persecution, the deliverance, and even non-deliverance, the judgment, and all that God did resulted in the word of God growing and multiplying. Multiplication could be called fruitfulness because that's what it is. Fruitfulness is glorifying to the Father. Glory is what the Father desires. Glory is what the Father will not share with those who seek it on their own. Though he gives glory to his children whom he did seek and whom he did redeem. Listen to Paul's words in his letter to the Romans right after verse 28 when he is speaking of our glorification. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. I want you to notice the past tense, the completed work that is revealed to us there in these verses. God has purpose that the bride of his beloved son will be glorified. That means we will be fruitful and we will be multiplied for his glory as he is bringing us to glory. That happens as we trust and obey. God knows how to bring the increase and the increase belongs to the Lord. It does not come apart from our faithful obedience to plant and to water the good seed, to walk in obedience, to trust God. Because ultimately that's what it means to trust God. It is to obey Him. A farmer cannot see a multiplication of fruit if he does not plant the seed. He sows his seed in faith that God will bring the increase. There can be no crop and no multiplication and no glorification if there is no seed sown. We are called to be faithful in good times and bad. We are called to trust and to obey. Only through obedience will we see multiplication to glorification. Only through the fulfillment of our obedience will disobedience be punished. Let's prepare to come to the table. The table that reminds us that Jesus made a way for us to walk in obedience. You do realize apart from the grace of the God, you cannot, you cannot obey God apart from his grace. This is a table of grace. It's a table of thanksgiving. We are thanking God for the grace poured out upon us so that we can be his people walking in obedience, punishing disobedience, giving witness to his name and to his glory. As you trust in Jesus, come to this table. Proclaim his body, proclaim his blood. Christian, welcome to Jesus.
Thank you, Lord. Father, just as we thank you each time we come to a table to eat our food, Lord, we thank you that you invite us and prepare for us this table each week to eat our spiritual food and to have our spiritual nourishment. We thank you for all that you have given to us in Christ. And all that you freely gave us in Christ is made possible because Christ gave his body and his blood for us. Father, we thank you for this bread. We eat it with thanksgiving. We thank you for the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. The only thing that has the power to wash away and take away the filth of our sin. And we thank you that this blood has the power to eternally cleanse us. We thank you for the covenant established by the blood of Christ. We drink this cup with thanksgiving. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. Let's all stand. Well, as I charge you today, I want to remind you that persecution is not something that we should look for or seek after, but it is something that we should not be surprised by as we walk in obedience to Christ. God's deliverance will come in his time and in his way, and we need to remember that as we look at our nation that is in desperate need of God's deliverance. Our obedience is key in punishing the disobedience that will ultimately result in God's judgment if that disobedience is left unchecked. God uses all things for his glory. Ultimately, God is glorified as his word grows and as his word is multiplied. God can take persecution, deliverance, and judgment and use them all to grow and multiply his word for his glory. As followers of Christ, we must keep our eyes on him and not on the impossibility of our situation or our circumstance, the things we cannot control. For those things that have been put in our control, that have been given for us to be responsible for, we are charged to walk in obedience to Christ and to his word. We are charged to walk in obedience to him even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of judgment. And while we await our deliverance, 
We are to remain obedient and trustworthy and faithful and steadfast. May we do this with grace from Him and glory to Him. Amen. I didn't do this earlier. I failed to uh, us to pray for Caleb and his family as they get ready to go to California for um, EJ's brother's wedding. So please keep them in your prayers. Uh, they leave Tuesday and they'll be gone for a week or more. Pray for a safe trip, an uneventful trip, but a fun trip. Uh, and so we, we ask that, Father, in the name of Jesus.